Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. It was kind of like a rebirth for me to be able to dig a little bit deeper, talk about, you know, things that weren't necessarily funny and humorous and filled with levity, but had a little bit more seriousness to them. And also allowed me to commiserate with other women experiencing it who reached out to me after reading it saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Nobody understands this. And that's when I think I realized I was onto something by being a little bit more authentic with the hard parts of marriage and motherhood and parenting. Diaper rash, dating for divorcees, cellulite, support bras, depression, dealing with mean girls and their mean moms, dry wines, laughing through the tears. All fair game at Wine and Cheez-Its, the online destination for commiserating moms where oversharing is caring. It's the brainchild of Rachel Sobel, our guest today, who's actually figured out how to make a living on this. Do tell and do stay with us. Sunday, November 10th, a big night for music, RVA, and public media. Full Disclosure presents Not a Surf at the National in Richmond for a landmark concert and interview live on stage. Hear the stories, then hear the music. I interview the band on its 25 years in the business, from breaking out to getting fired by their record label and then hustling to establish a new identity and a new bond with fans. All of it's going to be taped for a documentary pilot, including their full concert on stage. Tickets available at thenationalva.com, but you can save on fees by buying them in advance at the box office. Sunday, November 10th, not a surf at the National in downtown Richmond on Full Disclosure. Join us. Joining us from her mom cave in South Florida, uh, it's her closet where she actually live streams from weekly for an enormous audience across the world. Rachel Sobel, writer and blogger, creator of Wine and Cheez-Its. Have I described you correctly? I feel like you nailed it. I think that's pretty perfect. And I am in my mom cave. <laughs> this is a this is not just a gimmick. It's the only place you can hide from your kids and broadcast this show. And you live stream it every week from your closet? I do. And it really, it you know, I think every mother can relate to the fact that your children are just all over you, 24 hours a day following you. You have no space. And so when I decided to branch out from writing and do a little show of my own, I figured out that really the only space in my entire house where nobody would follow me was my own little tiny walk-in closet where I could shut the door, be by myself, and talk to a million people whose faces I couldn't see. You know, Rachel, I, I always tell my friends that I decided long ago never to walk in, in anyone's shadow, but um, you really decided to go on uh, on your own way. We spoke <laughs> several did. years ago. You were in PR. You you had a bit of, like many people, uh, a bit of a kind of an employment, quarter-life, existential crisis, and what the heck do I want to do? Um, but had I told you, you know, and you and I go back, we went to high school together, we went to elementary school together. If I told mm-hmm. you back in the day, let's look into this crystal ball, you're going to be oversharing details of your life onto this <laughs> little this little uh, uh, monolith on your, on you know, this palm-held thing that you can share every detail with the world. You can cry with them, you can laugh with them, you can stream things from your closet. You would have punched me. And also, by the way, Donald Trump is president, but... Um, <laughs> Do you know a what lot I'm of saying? surprises. Do you, yeah. Do you, I, yeah. And, 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 uh, I know, and Aunt Becky's going to jail. But anyway, I digress. Like, you know, um, <laughs> like that, it's so, it's so surreal to kind of have to stand out. Is this what you do for a living? You overshare for a living. I really do. And it's incredibly surreal for me because, you know, I've always been an open book to my close circle of friends, but I've kept a lot of information close to the vest for many years because I never was an oversharer with the public. And I think just like you said, after, you know, burnout from being in PR for almost two decades and working so hard and having a small child at home, I just, I really needed to kind of look deep inside myself to figure out what I wanted to do. And because PR, the majority of it is a lot of writing. That's kind of where my heart really lived and I had a passion for it, but I just didn't enjoy writing for other people. I wanted to do my own thing. And I'm with you, Robin. If you would have told me that I'd be talking about my marriage and my husband's vasectomy and a miscarriage and my daughter being into visco, whatever the latest trend is, I would have laughed at you and told you there is no way that not only am I oversharing, but I'm going to make a living. It will become my livelihood. It's, It's just as shocking to me, but it's pretty incredible that I get to do this and have two little girls watching every step to see that you don't have to fit into that perfect box of what a career is supposed to look like anymore. So take me back to um, 
the discovery process of this, this the exploratory committee. I mean, because you and I talked, you know, I, I had to reinvent as well. It used to mm-hmm. be that I thought, uh, you know, one, I thought I'd have a different career. Two, that when I became a journalist, you you um, you planned on somebody else subsidizing your reporting and your expenses and the like. And when that fell apart, journalists themselves became free agents. And everybody's writing, as you know now, on HuffPo, on mm-hmm. LinkedIn. There's there's good stuff. There's bad stuff out there. But it really diminished the value of content. And I remember that when we had that conversation, that's kind of the, the moment of pause where a person might be able to have a million thoughts and might be able to hold forth like a fire hydrant with ideas and empathy and, and whatnot. But but making a living on that is a whole other consideration. So walk me through the, the crisis and the discovery process and, and how you finally kind of firmed up this this identity? So I moved back to South Florida after many years in the Northeast and came back to South Florida getting divorced and having a toddler at my side. And I had quit my job, my, my real job, to get my child situated in school. And so I'd been freelancing for a while. I'd always been, I've always had a hustle. I'm not a stay-at-home mom where I can sit and do nothing. I just always needed something that provided some form of income and stimulation other than, you know, washing sippy cups all day. I just couldn't do it. So I went back to work. I went to work internal at a software company and I was there for a couple of years, but very quickly in the in the beginnings of that job, I realized that I was number one, I was one of the oldest people and I, I was only in my late 30s. And so a lot of the people just had different priorities. They wanted to go to happy hour. They wanted to stay late at work and you know they didn't really care about getting home to families. And I had lived that life already. So I already uh-huh. felt kind of at a disadvantage. And the management there was just very, very mean girl-esque. And I've always had a trigger around mean girls. I just, I don't want my kids to be mean girls. I don't ever want to be a mean girl. And so I just felt completely defeated. I hated what I was doing, but I'm also responsible. I have a family. I have a husband. And so we, we had a lot of honest conversations about finances and my future. And when I started to take on more freelance work, I would basically take everything that was thrown my way. So I would work all day at a job I hated. I would come home and churn out as much writing as possible, mostly for business-focused clients and tech companies, because that was always my sweet spot in PR. And I would just try and match my salary as quickly as I can. And once I started to do that consistently, my husband and I looked at each other and said, okay, let's, let's pull the plug. And I quit. And it was the most freeing, but the most fearful moment of my life because it became real. I now, everything rested on my shoulders to make a living doing something I never envisioned myself doing. I was responsible for everything from billing clients to coming up with content to finding clients and making ends meet the best that I could. And it's incredible because it's your own and you're building it by yourself, but it is also incredibly daunting and scary. So what was that moment where you kind of said, listen, maybe, you know, you, you talked, you, you remarried and you spoke mm-hmm. and said that, look, I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fake it this time. I'm not going to be a measured PR person. I have to really mm-hmm. put it all out there. Yeah, I said, I can't do this. I just can't. And my my end goal was always to write for myself. But I also was very cognizant, cognizant of the fact that the writing for the businesses and the tech startups and all those people that I had relationships with, I'm going to be honest, it paid more than just starting a blog and monetizing it with some banner ads. And so I felt like if I started there and used that as a cushion to build my own business kind of in the shadows, that was that was how I looked at my strategy. And my husband was incredibly supportive because he believed in me and believed in my talent. And so very shortly when I left my full-time job and started freelancing, I started my personal blog all about motherhood. And in the beginning, it was really just anecdotal stories about my family and holidays and, and little funny things that people could relate to and laugh at, but really provided just entertainment, that entertainment factor. And it was probably only my mother that was reading it at the time and maybe a few close yeah, friends. Yeah, same here. I think my mom was the only one. <laughs> This is my show. Go ahead. Yeah. So, um, Hi, Mom. you know, I just, it's for me, I use it as an outlet because I did come out of a divorce and I felt a little bit broken emotionally, even though I had remarried and was very happy. I was picking up the pieces of my life um, publicly and trying to find levity in it and trying to find ways to relate to people, but I still wasn't entirely comfortable kind of telling the whole story. So it was, it was great and it was entertainment worthy and people loved it, but I knew I had to dig a little bit deeper and I was scared. I was scared 
scared to do that. Um, Here was a pivotal did... moment. Here's a pivotal moment, Rachel, when you quote, uh, <laughs> you were blackballed, you say, by a bunch of Boca Raton's finest mean moms because you wrote a tongue in cheek post about your older daughter's preschool graduation resembling a Justin Bieber concert. They oh, uh, ratted the... you out. They <laughs> they ratted you out to the director who thought it was funny. And then yes. um, all all two of them promptly defriended you on Facebook. And you said that was a defining moment in your writing. I took it the post was. down to try to avoid unnecessary drama. I realized that it's when you step outside of the, quote, comfortable writing that the real magic happens. You say, you told me this. People want to laugh. They want to commiserate. They want to relate. They want to connect. They want real, unfiltered accounts from the trenches. That is all true. And that was, it's crazy for me to look at that and th- think that it was a defining moment, but it really was because I here I am, my older daughter um, is in preschool, I'm not mar- remarried yet, and um, I'm sitting at this preschool, which I did not name, I didn't name any teachers, I was very smart about keeping it innocuous, even though obviously my local friends knew what was going on, but I was respectful of it, but it really was like a Justin Bieber concert, there were lights flashing, they were handing out, you know, things that you buy for 20 bucks in the aisle, whether, you know, whatever fanfare they had going on, and I'm looking around going, oh my god, is this real life? There were nannies holding spots in line for parents who didn't want to wait at seven o'clock in the morning for a seat. And I'm looking around thinking, this is great material. This is really good. This is something that people will read and they will laugh at. And I mean, I'm a parent at this school, but I can find the humor in it because I just, it's, it's, it was next level out of the ordinary, just something I did not expect at a, you know, a four or five year old's graduation from preschool. So I wrote it and I left the details out. And obviously people who knew what was going on, printed it out, took it to the director, um, tattled on me, were so upset. And I'm not dumb. I knew that it was because they were looking into a mirror and probably upset about the way that I described things in terms of how they would be perceived. But I thought it was hilarious. The board members of the school thought it was hilarious and were sharing it until they got in trouble for sharing it. Um, and I panicked. I had a moment of panic as a writer, which I'm, I'm sure you've experienced in varying levels. And I took it down. I took the post down because I was so afraid of my daughter being um, anything negative being you know, held against her. And I, I removed it. And it's to this day one of my biggest regrets because it, it was probably one of the most popular posts with so much engagement and my analytics were off the charts. But I was thinking of my child and the environment and I just you know felt like it would have been irresponsible of me to put that ahead of her. But it really was a great post. And yeah, all two people who tattled on me to the director to try and get me in trouble defriended me on Facebook as if that would crash my world down. But here I am, you know, still talking about it, using that as a pivotal moment. And and they're still the same miserable people who probably tattle on other people for other things. And I've moved on professionally and broadened my horizons. You know what? I, I thought a real defining moment for you was this manifesto that you posted to um, Scary Mommy back in 2016. It said, Dear undivorced person, stop telling me what to do with my kid. And I'm going to read an excerpt where you kind of really start to own the voice. Know this about the divorced mother trying to make everyone happy. She'd love to be there. She'd love to put on some clothes other than yoga pants, do her hair and makeup, and have some good old-fashioned lady debauchery. She's not happy about missing it, trust me, but she's much more unhappy about missing precious time with her child, and that's what it comes down to. Her kid is going to beat you out every time, and I know it firsthand because she is me. That got an enormous response, and that was both pointed and vulnerable at the same time. I mean, is that is that the moment where you decided, listen, warts and all, I'm going to own this? It is. And, you know, I get, as cheesy as it sounds, I get chills hearing you read my words because that article was a big article for me. It was the first time that I very publicly talked about being divorced and being a single mom and all of the responsibilities and burdens that came along with that. And it wasn't just in the bubble of my own blog. That was the first article that I had accepted to Scary Mommy, which is, you know, like the mothership to mom bloggers. And so everyone who is trying to make a career and carve out a niche, you want to be in that publication. It's like one of those milestones. So I had tried, you know, a dozen times to get pieces accepted And that was the first one that landed. And I learned many things from that. I learned that, you know, you're going to get so many negative comments and not to read them because that was even more harrowing than writing the article itself because people read titles, they don't dig into the content itself and they just make judgments and post them publicly, um, you know, as if you are a robot with no feelings. And that's a little bit hard, but it helps 
helps, you know, get that thicker skin, I think that we all need when we are in this industry. Um, But it was the first time that I really did let that vulnerability show and talk about my personal life in a negative way, the things that really messed with me emotionally. And I think at that time, too, I had so many friendships that were changing because of my divorce. Friends did not understand that I couldn't just get a sitter and go out on a Saturday night when I had my child because now I split time and I didn't have her every day. They didn't understand how I couldn't just switch schedules with my ex to coordinate to be out for their birthdays. There were so many insensitivities that made me feel inferior as a friend, as a woman, as a mother. And I think getting it all out there in that scary mommy article was kind of like a rebirth for me to be able to dig a little bit deeper, talk about, you know, things that weren't necessarily funny and humorous and filled with levity, but had a little bit more seriousness to them. And, and also allowed me to commiserate with other women experiencing it who reached out to me after reading it saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Nobody understands this. And that's when I think I realized I was onto something by being a little bit more authentic with the hard parts of marriage and motherhood and parenting. Now, this this was parlayed. I mean, things started really opening up for you uh, after this essay, which was difficult to write, but you say it was very cathartic. You got a regular gig in a uh, local mag, a monthly column in Lifestyle magazine. You wrote mm-hmm. for a few other outlets, and um, you you served as a contributor for HuffPo Parents. That's when I saw your name, and you really kind of hit the tripwire on the big time. Uh, what came next was your first piece for Pop Sugar, uh, which must have been incredibly difficult to write, was about your miscarriage. And you said you sat on that article for a year before having the courage to hit send. I did. I was that one petrified me as much as I thought I was scared to post the divorce one. The miscarriage one, you know, that was when you experience loss, um, it it stays with you. It just it's not something that just goes away because you have another child. I mean, God willing, thank God I went on to have another healthy baby. But that miscarriage rocked my world in ways that I just was not even mentally prepared to understand or wrap my head around. And I knew that I had a responsibility since I'd now opened the door to being vulnerable and showing all parts of my life, not just the funny parenting moments. I had a responsibility to share that because I felt like just like divorce, miscarriage is one of those things in parenting and life in general that isn't normalized. And the more that we start to normalize these conversations where women can feel comfortable sharing these parts of our lives that are the ugly, messy parts, I think that's where we start to connect as mothers and as women, as people. And we start to realize that no matter what kind of shoes we're wearing, what kind of car we're driving, where our kids go to school, we have these touch points with each other that really make us part of this sisterhood. And I I truly believe that. And so I wrote that article, I rewrote it, I would put it down, I would cry every time I opened my computer. I didn't even show it to my husband until it was completed because I didn't want any feedback. I wanted to just kind of get everything out as raw as I possibly could. And it was it was tough. It was tough to write. And to this day, it's tough to read. And I still every time they rerun it, I still get DMs and comments and emails from women all over the place um, thanking me for putting into words something that is so difficult to experience as a woman and as a mother. And so to me, it made it all worth it because I felt like this small little piece of my life that may not mean a a ton to a lot of people meant something to so many people who had gone through it but couldn't find the way to voice how they felt. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Rachel Sobel. She is uh, the writer and blogger, the, the the mind behind Wine and Cheez-Its, which now has a following of, what is it, 45, 46,000 people on Instagram? I am approaching 50,000 as we speak. You are internationally known and known to rock the microphone. She joins us from her mom <laughs> cave in South Florida. It's actually her closet uh, where she live streams from. Um, I wonder, by the way, and, and you know, in, in the service of talking about this morphing into a business, has any... Um, luxury kind of closet management expansion company approached you and said, why don't we deck you out with like the mother of all closets? Uh, That would be like the ultimate promotion, wouldn't it be? It would. And I keep waiting and I've sent emails to the closet factory, the closet company, all these closet people waiting for someone to come in and and turn my little humble recording studio into like a Mac Daddy closet. So I'm here when you guys are ready. Mac Mommy, Mac Mommy, sorry. (laughs) Mac Mommy, Mac Mommy. Mommy. (laughs) 
So talk to me about that point, though. There must have been revelation when um, this got traction. You talked about once you hit 20,000 followers on Instagram, the brand started reaching out for collaborations, and then you got verified. What is the process in this? I mean, you, yes, you are saying qualitatively that when I truly owned the vulnerability and the sharing is caring and realizing that um, it's incredibly difficult to do, incredibly difficult to hit that send button, but um, all of the different uh, the feels that you get from around the world through DMs and everything that just makes you indispensable to people. They're opting into your voice effectively. When did that suddenly ring a bell that, listen, I might be able to make a living off this? I think it was very shortly after that article because what I realized was leading up to that, I kind of was pegged as the funny girl. She's so funny. Everything she writes is hilarious. I laugh so hard. And I love that. There is not there is no better compliment than being told that you're funny and that people like your sense of humor. But when I wrote that article and deviated from the levity that I usually shared, it showed a different side of me, not just to the people who were reading my stuff and following my social media channels, but it proved to me that I could switch hats a little bit and not always live in that world of funny. And I think that when brands started to see that I had different voices, you know, brands are smart when they're working with people online these days. They want people to use their own voices to relate to their audiences versus handing them over a piece of canned copy to post on their feed because that's the stuff that's going to pull engagement. So, But help me, help me with that. Help me with that. That's got to be so... uh, difficult and sensitive because once you're looked at as a tool of the brands or if, if 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 once you lose your authenticity i mean at some point a brand wants to say we completely have no trans fats you know four ingredients five ingredients but when you start cutting the corners on that do you risk alienating all these people out there who put their voice and trust into you I think it's a huge fear. And it took me a very long time. People, it it was a long time before I worked with brands and people would say to me, you have this platform. Why aren't you monetizing? Why aren't you working with sponsors and brands? And I would always say the same thing. I don't want people to just see me as a conduit for ads. I'm a person. I have a voice. I'm writing all these real things. And what I realized was that I was cheating myself because here I have the opportunity to pick and choose the things that I want to promote because they can be things that I have personal experience experience with that when I share, it's not going to sound like this ad that was dreamed up in a boardroom by a bunch of people who don't know me. I can actually use my voice and tell a story. And that's the most important part of, I think, everything that I, I, that I do, whether it's sharing a personal story about dinner I made for my kids that did not go well or an ad for a company I am always cognizant of the storytelling side of it. I want people to understand how something fits into my life as a product and why I use it and why I love it. And I think that's why I started to build these relationships relationships with brands that built a momentum that I then it got bigger than me because people saw that there was true engagement and true interest. And I say it all the time, you know, people buy a lot of the services and products that I talk about because I am super authentic about how I'm using it and why. And they also know that I get approached by brands all the time that I turn stuff down because I'm very honest about that as well. If I wanted to, I could probably have an ad running every other day on my feed, but I'm very, very conscious about doing it, you know, once a week, twice a week at most to to make sure that the integrity of the whole reason why I started doing this is still evident and still there. I don't want to just be an Instagram feed that turns into sponsored posts every day. So what is the first brand that made an overture to you? If you could share that with us. You like to overshare. Um, I do. I do like to overshare. There were a few at once. One of them was, um, I work with a lot of local restaurants because my feed is filled with food. And so I would constantly have, um, because I love to eat. I I, I just love it. My husband loves it. My kids don't. I don't know how they're mine, but you know, another mystery to solve another time. I would have local restaurants reach out to me all the time to have me come in, you know, comp my meal, knowing that I was going to share it if I enjoyed it. And so I, that's kind of where where all the brand stuff started. The ones that reached out to me proactively for things that I would post that were more like goods and services, I had a bedding company reach out to me after I had my baby that made baby blankets and they were natural baby blankets. It was called Living Fresh. They reached out to me and sent me 
bedding and a baby blanket. And they're very, they were very smart because a lot of brands have this entitlement where if they send you something, they will say, we want you to post about this. I am very clear that if you send me something, I have to use it first. I have to make sure I love it. I have to make sure that it's something that I feel comfortable sharing. And I'm very, very upfront about that when I engage in these relationships. And so they were very respectful about that and said, no, we want to send you these things. We believe in them. We love them. If you love it and use it and you want to post about it, we would love it. If you don't, we totally understand. And I think that kind of set the tone for how I operated moving forward and took away the fear of me saying no. Um, but at I this point, that- at this point, Rachel, you still had your day job, right? You still were doing private label PR or, or writing for brands. Yes, yes. Um, I wasn't and so the, the tough, you know, it's like it's the innovator's dilemma where you need to kind of take that leap of faith at some point. Maybe it's starting to become tantalizing. Oh, I could get swag and dinners and blankets. That must have been that conversation with your husband and your friends at some point. It was like, what if I, you know, truly devoted all of my time to this? Could I make a go of it? Could I make a living? Talk talk to me about that consideration, about the financials, about what it would take, about how much time you'd have to commit to it, uh, hardware, social media, if you'd have to hire other people. Like, I want, I want to get to that point of inception where you'd realize that this could be much more than a hobby. Well, when the first couple brands started to reach out to me, my husband and I did have those conversations. You know, what is it going to take for this to become something that can live on its own? And I don't have to take these side hustle jobs anymore to have this piecemeal income. And none of us really knew the answer to that because the, the whole influencer thing is so new. It's There's no rules around it. It's kind of like, you know, mayhem, to be perfectly honest, because everyone's throwing out different prices and brands are all doing different things. And so I think that when I sat down and I looked at the the frequency that I was being contacted and the willingness of what people were willing to pay, I already knew that I had to grow. I had to grow my audience first because the biggest thing with these brands is that they want um, they want you to have over 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people. They want, you know, every time you reach a milestone, the, the quality and the quantity of the people that are reaching out to you changes. And the minute I got that check mark, um, which I, for a year, nonstop, every single day, like clockwork, I applied on Instagram for verification every single month. And I had it in my calendar and I would well, just explain, keep doing explain it. That for our, explain that for our listeners. I mean, what is that? I've gotten it on Twitter. I don't even know what the heck it means. You're verified. So you're legit. I don't, so I don't you're get legit. It. You're you're a legit account with legit engagement. You're posting real content. They look at everything. They want to make sure it's not just an account that has a bunch of memes. They want to make sure that you're posting your own content. I know you have to be searchable and have searchable work online. So I'm sure they do their due diligence to see if you have articles or content out there already. If you're applying as a blogger, influencer, writer, whatever category in that that realm that you're choosing, they want to make sure that you are a, le- a legit account putting out original content that, you know, is appealing to the masses and that you're pulling engagement on your posts because they're very, very um, chintzy about handing that check mark out. And it's hard to get. And people are always asking, what's the secret? What's the secret? Well, there's no secret. You have no control. You just keep applying and crossing your fingers. And I literally did that every single month for a year. I would go onto their platform. I think it's your driver's license and what your name is and what your, um, your moniker, your handle is and you hit send and you just wait for that notification. And every month I would get the decline, decline, decline. You don't meet standards. And I I really would scratch my head and and say, I'm going to give up. I'm just going to keep going. I'm not going to worry about it, but I can't because I'm not a quitter. And then it was a challenge and I kept doing it. And magically one day that notification came through and I thought I was hallucinating because it said that I had been verified. And all of a sudden I see the check mark next to my name. You make it, you make it sound, you make it sound like the gold chocolate wrapper in Willy Wonka or something. You know, (laughs) for, for someone like me, it is. And it's interesting because when I tell people who are not in this world, they're like, I don't get it. What's the big deal? And I understand that. But for someone who's working every day, scraping by to try and build a name for herself and make this her livelihood, it's one of those big pieces of validation that is is so fulfilling 
um, that I can't even put into words that I, I, I think I almost cried that day. And even my husband was like, oh my God, this is huge. But it really, the minute I got that check mark, I started to get DMs from big, small, medium companies all over the place to try and get me to promote their products. And so I knew that there was power behind that juice, that it wasn't could you just st- Could fluff. you step back? Could you step back from this for a minute? Just to, yes. to, to fill in the background for other people who don't know out there. Instagram is owned by Facebook. It was a masterful acquisition, a billion dollars that they spent on it uh, back in 2012. It's worth multiples of that right now. We know that a lot of this dialogue, you talk to high schoolers these days, they use Insta, they use TikTok, they've moved on past Facebook. I mean, don't even get them into email or anything else like that. (laughs) So Facebook and Instagram are in the same ecosystem. So you have to cross-pollinate those. But before I even get into that, does it bother you as a former PR person, as a veteran PR person, that so much of your uh, uh, of your destiny, of your kind of marketing prowess and everything is determined by this one company that has kind of hoovered up advertising influence in Silicon Valley, Facebook and Google. I mean, it's up to them. It's like the, the, the two mobs that own the entire business. It, it is very frustrating. And I think the frustrating part about it is not that it all falls in their lap. It's that you know, there's all these running jokes in my little communities on Instagram. Every time there's an algorithm change or every time there's a bug or every time something happens and Instagram goes down or freezes or you're unable to comment because there's a glitch. It's like you have that momentary sense of panic because it's no longer a game. This is my livelihood. If I have an ad to post for a company that is counting on me that I have a contract with and they've paid me money and I have a responsibility and then all of a sudden Instagram is being wonky that day, that panic sets in a little bit because it's bigger than just me posting a picture of a plate of food I ate. This is this is my life. This is how I'm paying my bills. This is how my mortgage is being paid. And so there's all of this um, pressure. And so as a former PR person, yes, I hate that that is where there's so much energy focus. But I think the bigger thing that really frustrates me is there's so many men and women like me who are working so hard to build platforms that really, really mean something to them. And there's always those few bad apples that spoil the bunch because you have the people out there calling themselves influencers who are just looking for a free meal ticket or looking for anything they can to post vanity type of stuff on their accounts. And they get grouped in with people like us who are working so very hard and diligently to make sure that we're doing everything right and legal and on the up and up. And it it puts a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. So that to me is more frustrating than the whole Facebook, Instagram monopoly situation. Rachel, when you did finally um, sign some deals with brands, and I've seen you Everything from, you know, you, you, you tout Adam and Eve products, I believe. You've actually mm-hmm. taken delivery of, of Cheez-Its um, <laughs> and, and certain <laughs> bottles of wine and everything. They kind of want to own that. Um, mm-hmm. Talk to us about how the economics of this work. So is it a kind of a click-through thing if, if you get – how do they judge engagement on Insta or Facebook? And is it kind of a pay-per-click, pay-per-view type thing? And, um, you know, as a second part to that, if you look at that and say, well, if I hustle even more, if I throw more content out – it'll derive more income for me. So, Does that even work that way? Well, it, it kind of. So brands work differently. There's affiliate type programs where there are either pay-per-click or you get paid when people click and actually purchase the product or service. For me, those types of relationships are not really beneficial because you know, those are things that really work for people who are in the fashion industry and they're posting constantly about the same articles of clothing or they're, they're just having repetitiveness because of the nature, um, since most of the stuff I post is very essay based and real life based. I, I get lost in the weeds if I do affiliate type stuff. So for people like me and my peers, we work more on flat fees or project fees. So we'll put together very professional statements of work like I did back in the day when I was in PR. I draw up a contract I talk with the brand about expectations for how many posts they want. Do they want stories with those posts? Do they want me to use my swipe up function in stories? Do they want me to take my own pictures? Are they sending me? Well, stock what is photos? that? What is the swipe up? What is the swipe up function in stories? Will you explain that? So if you reach 10,000, once you reach 10,000 followers on Instagram, and the reason why it's such a big milestone is then you get you gain the functionality to be able to have um, followers swipe up in the story and go directly to a link of your choice. So that's wow. very attractive for brands because once you hit that milestone, they can say, okay, yeah, we want you to sell our bed sheets and here's the link. And so then they can really track sales and ROI because they can look at the clicks that are coming from that 
that specific link in your stories. And that only becomes available when you hit that 10K mark, which is why everyone loses their mind when you hit it, because it's one of those bells and whistles that not everybody gets. And so when you put together all these pieces of what the brand wants you to do, sometimes it's a static post, sometimes it's a boomerang, sometimes it's video, sometimes they don't care. They just want you to do what you think works. But I am always very diligent about what I put in a contract and making sure that they know that, um, you know, I am not responsible for their metrics and their uh, traffic to their website and all of those things. So you have to be very clear. It really is a contract, just like with any business. Um, and then we agree on price and it's always a flat fee based on whatever it is that they want, for me at least. And we sign and that's it. And then I usually get paid electronically and I always request payment before. If I don't get paid before, there's been times where I have to chase money and I have two children, two dogs and a husband and I don't have time to chase money from anybody. So I try and make sure that I'm doing all the work up front so that once the content go li- goes live, it's just a matter of sharing analytics on how the post did with the brand. Now, you do overshare once again and you are making enough right now uh, what, three years into this, two years into this, you say to pay your mortgage every month? Um, sometimes. I mean, sometimes. It re- and that's the thing with when you do something like this, it's not consistent. You, you don't know what's coming in that month. There are months where I have far surpassed my corporate salary, and there are months where I haven't, and my husband pays the mortgage. So it really depends on what I have going on. But this is just a piece of it because this is the, you know, as you call it, the influencer part of where brands are engaging with you. But remember, I have the whole other side where I also get paid for essays and writing. And so when you put those two things together, that's really where my total income comes from. Full disclosure, you are listening to Rachel Sobel of Wine and Cheez-Its. She's sharing us uh, with us this journey uh, from her mom cave in South Florida, how she built this, this uh, budding social media channel uh, that, that overshares candor, humor, you know, gross-out stuff. It's, it's all there, and it's all super authentic, and she's actually making a living off it right now. Uh, in the 12 minutes or so we have left, I want to get an idea for what's in your future. For example, if... You know, as unthinkable as this may have been to the Rachel of six or seven or 10 years ago, like if I, again, I put this in the crystal ball and said, look into the future, you're going to be doing this um, with Adam and Eve, and you're going to be recommending certain toys and intimate devices and whatnot (laughs) on your Instagram channel. And you're like, what's Instagram? Um, Is there a good chance that this is going to morph into Wine and Cheese It's Corporation, and you're going to be a boss of people, and you're going to, you know, especially as... uh, Cord cutting continues, especially as people opt out of the old ecosystem of of cable channels. I mean, I don't know how many 20-somethings watch The View or soaps and the like, and advertisers are still going to want to advertise and, and connect with people. Yeah, I wouldn't that be great to be the boss of people? I mean, I'm certainly not the boss of my children. So it would be really nice to be in charge of something. Um, I the biggest fear for me in starting wine and cheese, it's has been bringing on staff, and I could use it, it would help me tremendously. But my control issues, admittedly, are difficult, because this isn't just a brand where I am throwing up random content. This is my life. This is these are very intimate details of what goes on in my day to day big, you know, and small. And so it's very, very daunting to me to think about giving people access to that world. I did hire someone recently on a part-time basis to help me organize the brand stuff and make sure I have a calendar set for all of my sponsored posts and all of those things. So I'm getting more comfortable with the idea of letting people into that world. Um, but for me in the future, I really, I love the live streaming. I love the show idea. I mean, I, I love to say that down the road, I could have my own show that wouldn't be in my closet, that would be, you know, on a, a serious XM type of situation or even a local channel here. That to me would be a dream come true. And I say it as I'm saying to myself, Rachel, that will never happen. That's ridiculous. Get your head out of the clouds. But just like you said, I never thought I'd be sitting here. 10 years ago, making a living this way. And so I try and remind myself that, you know, there, that anything is possible in this world. It's The rules are changing. What is What we can do with these platforms is changing. And so between that and the writing part of it, which I will never let go because I love the writing and it's why I left my job, um, I have a book 
proposal out in the wild that I am currently working on that kind of captures a little bit of everything we've talked about today. And I'm hoping that that also has legs. And so I never stop spinning my wheels to try and think of ways to boost my exposure, whether it's through the brand stuff that we talked about, the essay writing, the publications I work for. I've started speaking a lot more at events focused on motherhood, and I really want to do more of that. So I'm just trying to cover as many bases as possible and put myself out there so that um, my name is top of mind and remains top of mind so that when those opportunities arise, whether it's for a television show, a radio show, a, a podcast, whatever it is that is outside of my own closet and something that pays me real dollars, um, that's that's where my head is focused right now. And you are also on the Today Show's community contributors page, the Today Parenting Team. It says it's a community where anyone can write posts, ask questions, and share advice. And I see on your uh, site on this that you have that Good housekeeping seal uh, contributor from the Today Show. You have ninety two thousand readers. Do they full wholeheartedly promote this? Like on their Twitter feed, on their Facebook? Are you getting like when you write for these guys? Are you truly writing the full thrust of their power? Yeah. So when when you write for um, a site like the Today Show where you're a contributor, it really it depends on the people. My people have to see it and read it and vote it up and you know press that like button and then it gets their attention. Then they start to share it on their social channels and that's where it blows up and that's where I start to see all of a sudden I know that something got shared because I'll see hundreds of followers in a matter of five minutes, um, you know, on my my social feeds. And so yeah, there's power behind that, but it has to get noticed. They don't. Just pick something and promote it. It has to be something that kind of organically gains legs from the, the the material you put out there and the relatability factor. And once they see that happen, then they grab onto it and share it on their feeds, and and it becomes something that blows up and goes viral. Rachel, what did I see recently about your candor of how difficult it is when your children have to be away with their father? And something about maybe it was Netflix or movie night. Yes, I was featured on Netflix Family on their Instagram page with my kids talking about how uh, my older one and I have a tradition that we call living room movie theater, where it's just her and I and we set up blankets and popcorn, we sit on the couch and we pick something on Netflix to watch. Because you know, the reality is, is that while I have this incredible family that I'm thankful for, and it's chaotic, because it's a blended family, and I'm co parenting with another man I'm no longer married to. um, I don't get my daughter my older daughter, 24-7. And no matter how many years it's been, it kills me. I hate it. I feel like my family's not complete and it's a very hard thing. You don't ever accept it. I don't ever accept it. So we've kind of found these little moments to have where it's just her and I, or even just the four of us. Um, You know, we do things together as a family to really savor those moments because it's very, very difficult for me when she's with her dad, even though I know she's in good hands and she's loved and they have a great relationship to be without your child, especially when you have another child, a sibling sitting there with you 24-7, you start to worry about how she's feeling. Is she resentful? Is she upset? Does she feel like she's missing out? And then I realize it's really all my neuroses and she's totally fine. But it's a very hard thing as a parent in a divorce situation, especially with a blended family, to constantly have that void when your child is with the other parent. And you also have to work to protect the anonymity of the children. I mean, in some Insta yes. posts, you put the you put the smiley faces over them, or or you know, big big fat emojis. I mean, it is a it is a balancing act. People are looking for candor. They want to know all about you. I'm sure they reach out, but there also has to be a a a, 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 a firm barrier that kind of protects your family life and your moat and you know your 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 ex husband and also your your second husband. Yeah, there is. And that's, that's, I think, the hardest part, because, you know, when you're writing about motherhood and parenthood, people want to see the faces, they want to see who you're talking about. And in the beginning, I used to share a lot more. And as I grew, and I passed that 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, I would look at my numbers and say, Oh, my God, I have, you know, 40 something thousand strangers. I don't know these people. I can't share a picture of my child. I can't put a picture of her. It just seems irresponsible to me. And I don't say that in a judgmental way because plenty of people do it with success. For me personally, I have this 10-year-old who is finding her own voice and finding her own way. And she knows what I do. We talk very openly about it. But I've started to get to the point now where she's old enough that I ask her for permission. Are you okay with me posting this? Um, Are you okay with me writing about this? Because I don't ever want her 
to grow up, see this content online, read it and go, mom, how the hell could you share this? What were you thinking? Why would you do this to me? So it's a very interesting thing that I never thought about when I first started. It's not, you don't think that far down the road that you're going to grow to the point you're going to have all these eyes on you and then worry about the privacy of your family. But when you start down that journey of being vulnerable and being authentic, you also have this responsibility to share some parts of your life. So I do, I put emojis over my kids' faces or I try and show, you know, profile pictures of the back of their heads. I try very hard to not show their faces unless it's something a campaign I'm working on or a personal story I'm working on where I know for the power of it, I, I need to do that. Mm. And I want to hear about the book. What does the proposal look like? Obviously, there's tons of money to be made in books, Rachel. I could tell you that <laughs> firsthand. You're going to love it. There'll be no anti-anxiety meds, no drinking. You'll wake up every morning and just pound out the pages and they'll pay you 50 bucks per page. But do tell me what, what's in store for you. Oh, that's not how it works. Oh, um, oh yeah, it is. So I've um, spoken to a publisher who I've been having conversations with, and right now the idea is is very, very heavily based on my blog and the content on my blog, um, as well as tying in a lot of the authentic authenticity with the memes that I write and the videos that I post, and kind of coming up with this. I don't want to call it a guide, but it would be a very, very um, real in the trenches, as we talked about before, account of motherhood and mom guilt and mom shaming and just kind of finding your own way in this journey and realizing that you're not doing it wrong. It's just really that hard. Parenthood and motherhood is difficult and it's okay for us to admit that through humor. It's okay for us to admit that through vulnerability. And so I'm kind of trying to find all the pieces of the things that work and pulled engagement and gain that re relatability on my blog when I see what really hit uh, struck a chord with people and tie that into a nice little package, um, build on those stories and share a little bit more and push a little bit deeper within myself to do what I've been doing that has been working because it's been working on social media. So if I can um, take it to the next level and and really share and open up a little bit more and write the things that tend to be a little bit more difficult for me to share so openly. I, I'm saving it all for that that book that hopefully will make me a bazillionaire. And what is that advice, finally, um, in the couple of minutes we have left, that you would offer both to yourself when you are at that moment of crisis and, by extension, the, the many people out there who contact me and say, look, I have an idea, I have a cusp of an idea. I mean, I, w I would tell people to write it down. I mean, the barriers to writing now are so nil. You can go on Medium. You could post these thoughts to Facebook. Um, uh, it's not like anybody owns the printing presses that much anymore. Anybody's waiting for the newspapers. What is the advice that you'd give both to yourself and the people out there that maybe want to emulate what you did? You know, self-doubt is very real, and I think that we all experience it, especially when we're having that crisis where we're deciding what we want to do with our lives and if we're going to stay in our job or pursue a dream. And I think that you have to be equal parts strategic, but also fearless. And that's a very hard balance to strike because especially when you have a family, there's the financial responsibilities, there, there's the logistical responsibilities. And then there's a the piece of it where you want to find happiness, you want to pursue that dream. And it's a very hard thing to meet in the middle. And when I was ready to quit, I had a friend who happened to be a business coach say to me, you can't just walk out the door, Rachel, you have to have the foundation laid for how you're going to build this business. And so my advice to other people were, would be similar to what I did when I was working in that job unhappily. I did what I wanted to do had I already quit that job, but I was doing it at the same time to build that funnel of income to make sure that I could do this. And it, it sucks because it's a lot. You're, you're taking, you're giving up a lot of time with your family. You're giving up a lot of your free time, but in the end, you have to be strategic if you're going to give up a paycheck and you need to still support a family. And so I would say, follow that dream and be fearless about it, but just be smart. Have the part of you that's smart to make sure that you are you know, getting things trademarked. And I didn't know any of this before I started my site. I just threw a name up and said, okay, this will be, it's a cute, kitschy name. I didn't think about working with a lawyer for copywriting and all that stuff until probably a year or two in. So I think you have to have those conversations from a business perspective and remove the emotion of just wanting to get out and pursue your dream and make sure you are literally running it like a business as if it was something that you had to present to a board. 
And you know, I'm I I don't want to put you on the spot. Finally, I mean, and I'm not obviously not here to mansplain you, but you know, you and I go back a ways. Mm-hmm. And um, if I had one piece of advice for you, Rachel Sobel, is uh, try not to forget me when you make your first billion. <laughs> Never, ever, ever could I forget you. And you know, you you throughout my career have been a really good sounding board and given me advice, real advice. I remember coming to you about the whole bit book situation and you said to me, it is not as easy as it used to be where you go into a room and pitch a bunch of you know people sitting at a table, your idea, and they all clap and applaud and say, yes, great, let's sign you up. It is It is, there's so much noise. There's so many people trying to do the same thing. But I think also on that, that note of advice, Everybody has a voice and nobody can replicate your voice. They can write the same content, they can write the same topics, but they cannot do it in the way that you do it, unless they're just straight up plagiarists and those people just suck at life. So I think that as long as you stay true to your voice, even if it evolves along the way, I think there's always a way to monetize it. You just have to be committed to it and realize that it's not going to be easy every step of the way. Keep on mom and Rachel Sobel. You have to visit the blog wineandcheezits.com. That's W-H-I-N-E and Cheezits, C-H-E-E-Z-I-T-S.com. It's it's all the rage on Instagram. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Full disclosure, our engineer today was Steve Clark at VPM. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News 88.9 on the trusty NPR One app and on iTunes at link fulldradio.com. And look, while our Instagram is Full D Radio and it has a handful of followers, we are truly all the rage on MySpace. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Disclosure listeners, Sunday, November 10th at Richmond's historic National Theater. Full Disclosure Live presents an evening with Not a Surf, one of my favorite rock bands on 25 years of glory, of collapse, of rebuilding, of grit, of coming out and hustling their name back into the big time. A live recording, hear the stories, then hear the music. The band's going to perform a full concert. You can get your tickets at Facebook.com slash Full D Radio. You can go to the Nationals website. You can go to notasurf.com. Definitely do not miss it. November 10th at the National in RVA. Full disclosures, evening with Not A Surf. Hear the stories, then hear the music. Join us. <laughs>